0: Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. I was here for the first service. (laughs) Had a wonderful time of worship. I had to figure out how to preach better. So that's what I've been doing. Um, Mark chapter 10 is where we are. I love where we've taken the worship time this morning, thinking about Jesus truly representing us as one of us. It's just a delightful reality to, to bask in for a while that Jesus obeyed in our place. Jesus lived and died and took our place by faith in him. And and that needs to frame everything we do. As we've preached through Mark, we're getting reacquainted with Jesus. I know I have. I've known him as long as I can remember, but I feel like uh, I'm, I'm getting to know him in a fresh and deep way, and I pray that's happening for you as well. Mark chapter ten. Let's pray as we go to the Word. Father, we're grateful for your word, even though we don't always like it. (laughs) We don't like what it says to us sometimes. It, It defies our expectations and intuitions very often, and most certainly our cultural mores. But Lord, it's your word, and you're the creator. And so once again, we come before your word asking for humble hearts that are yielded to your truth. Lord, there's hard teaching in these words this morning, so I pray that you would help us to hear them coming from a loving father, a tender husband, a caring shepherd. Thank you for telling us the truth. Thank you for loving us in that, and I pray that we would know we're loved by you as we hear your truth this morning from the mouth of Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12 is our passage this morning as Jesus continues to teach us. Let's read it together. Mark 10, 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again, And again, as was his custom, in some ways Jesus was predictable. In some ways, not at all. But in some ways, like having a regular teaching emphasis in his ministry, he's very predictable. As was his custom, his habit, he taught them. And the Pharisees, these religious leaders, came up and in order to test him, asked... Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? Notice he doesn't give any scripture reference there. He leaves it up to them. And watch where they go. They said, among all that Moses said, you know Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament? Lots to choose from. Relevant to this issue, but look where they go. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What, therefore, God has joined together, let not man separate And now, as has happened before, Jesus moves from the public teaching in response to the religious leaders challenging him to a private teaching where he takes it deeper with his disciples. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So, we have here a passage on divorce. Not really. It's it's been so good to be forced, because of what I do, to get in the Bible and constantly say, what is this passage really about? it's actually not about divorce. Now, obviously it is in one sense, but not primarily. Really, this passage is about the same thing Jesus has been going on about in all his teaching. Who he is and how we are to understand him and relate to him. This passage, once again, is about discipleship. It's about what it means to be a true follower of Jesus because you understand who he is. Oh, it is about divorce, and we need to think about that idea. Divorce is devastating. I bet if we asked every one of us in this room, we could all find some connection to the devastation of divorce very personally. Um, This week, I'm 51, this week, uh, my parents were divorced when I was three. This week, I've had to deal very practically and personally with some of the fallout of my parents' divorce in 1967. (laughs) I'm still dealing with it. I I still think I deal with it personally, just in all kinds of things that I deal with. But, But very practically, I've been dealing with it this week. Divorce is devastating. And people used to be very aware of the devastation of divorce. My mother has actually told me that when she was divorced, she couldn't stop thinking about when she was a kid growing up on Westfield Avenue in Ansonia, Connecticut, this blue-collar factory town. She knew the divorcee on the street. She said she had her shades pulled all the time. Everybody knew the woman who had been divorced in the town, in the neighborhood. There was a stigma attached to it. It's like you got divorced no matter what the circumstances, even if you were completely a victim of this situation, you wore a big D on your chest the rest of your life. Society was such that divorce was a a grievous thing that, that gave you this burdensome stigma you carried around. My mother thought about that a lot as she became the divorced woman in town. And I hate the effect that had. And that's sort of one end of the problem, isn't it? Because it seems we've swung on a pendulum so far away from that sort of thing to the point where we live in what people have called a divorce culture. There is this radical sense of self-determination and self-fulfillment that drives everything now. This idea of no fault divorce. You don't even need to have a good reason to get divorced anymore. I just don't want to be married, is all you need. It's just astounding how much we have swung on that pendulum. Uh, do you know the marriage industry and it is an industry makes a lot of money every year? Do you know the divorce industry makes way more money? It's really expensive to get divorced. I, I Googled. Divorce. And all these ads immediately came up of these people who make their living off of cheap, fast, easy divorce. Uh, There's just a few. The first one that came up is California Divorce Online, $149. See if you qualify. Simple, do-it-yourself divorce. Three-step process. Get started now. FAST, uh, this one is uh, California Divorce. We complete and file everything. An uncontested divorce specialist in Orange County. FAST, no lawyer, 100% guaranteed. Best way to divorce, no workshops, no appointments, no lawyers. Do-it-yourself, California Divorce. All these different options, all these websites. Doing your California divorce is easy exclamation point as featured on CNN USA today and NBC low cost divorce $159 you'd think they're selling tamales It's just amazing, isn't it, what's happened? Listen to one very well-selling book, just this little quotation from it. You must accept the reality that in today's multifaceted world, it's easy for two persons to grow apart. Listen, letting go of your marriage, if it is no longer fulfilling, key point, can be the most successful thing you've ever done. Getting a divorce can be positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented. It can be a personal triumph. There's one article that came out last year called Four Types of Infidelity That Can Save Your Marriage. Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith, this couple that is just looked up to and revered. We've got to keep on what they're doing all the time. There was an article last year that, talking about Will Smith finding the secret to a happy marriage, which is seeking permission from your spouse before you cheat on them. He says this, our perspective is you don't avoid what's natural. See, all these ways of talking are fascinating. You're going to be attracted to people. In our marriage vows, we didn't say forsaking all others. If it came down to it, we say to one another, look, I need to have sex with somebody. I'm not going to do it if you don't approve of it, but please approve of it. Despite admitting he has sexual feelings for other women, he's determined not to split from his wife and goes to all lengths to ensure they stay together. Boy, we we certainly have moved far away from this terrible stigma. It's now a means of personal triumph and self-fulfillment. So what does it mean to be faithful and truthful and graceful in a divorce culture? What does it mean? Well, Jesus tells us what we need to know. He understands and helps us understand how we need to think about marriage. In a self fulfillment, personal self determination culture, we need to hear from Jesus. You know, when I was a kid, you could be a politician and make a racist statement and wouldn't really have much of an effect. But if you committed adultery, your career was over. Do you know today that's been exactly flipped? You make a racist statement, you're done. You commit adultery, nobody seems to care much. It really is fascinating. What's my point that one's worse or better? No, my point is we can't let culture determine our values. It it flip-flops and calls evil good and good evil and goes by latest opinion polls. We've got to hear from God. We can't let what I want in the moment determine what we do. Jesus is trying to teach us about true discipleship. What is possible, what he enables through himself and his work. He calls us to something radically different, even radically different than the, the way the people, even the religious leaders were thinking at the time. Jesus wants us to hear loving, compassionate truth. He is the truth and he wants us to know what marriage really is and what it's really ultimately about and where the ability to have the kind of marriages that is what it's about comes from. It comes from him. It comes from right relationship with him. It comes from the Spirit's enabling in the gospel's work in our lives. This is about gospel living. Oh, yes, the details here are marriage and divorce, but it's amazing how easily we get caught up in that. And if we're not careful, we actually start approaching a passage like this with the same mentality the Pharisees approach Jesus with with their question. I think we do this. Jesus is changing the agenda like God so often does. He's actually changing the question. And he does it in an astounding way. Notice verse 2. The Pharisees come to test him, dirty scoundrels. That's not in there. I added that. That's my footnote I would put in there. If I were writing the Bible, I would add dirty scoundrels in there. They come to test him it's actually a fine question it's an important ethical question divorce is reality, marriage is a reality all sorts of effects on this So, but their agenda is very different than some honest question seeking truth they're not after truth they're not after finding answers they just want to get Jesus in trouble they, they want to affirm what they think or just get Jesus in big trouble so they come to test him Be very careful of cliches, even Christian cliches, maybe especially Christian cliches. There are so many things we say that even take on more authority in the Bible. Like, God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible, and actually it's very unbiblical. But it can can take on such prominence because it's repeated so often. Well, one of those expressions is, never question someone's motives. Now, we don't want to be simplistic in questioning people's motives because a lot of times you don't know the real motive. So, point taken. But don't question someone's motives. God's very concerned that we pay attention to motives. Very concerned, starting with our own. And so, so, it's very important. He actually gives us insight into the motives of this question. Here they go again, trying to get Jesus in trouble with really bad motives in the question. Not really wanting truth, but using a tragedy like divorce to get their way for personal gain. Motives are really important. But then... How does Jesus respond to their question? He says, what did Moses command? He goes back to the Bible like he always does. Jesus was a Bible man. He, he, he grounded his understanding of things in the scriptures. He meditated on it. He memorized scripture. He was constantly quoting scripture. It was always his referent point. Let's follow Jesus' lead in that in our lives. The Bible's the authority here in this discussion. What did Moses command? And it is amazing. He just throws it out there. You could choose from lots of places. What did Moses command? Well, where do we begin? They didn't hesitate. They go right to Deuteronomy 24. That's their verse. That's the debated verse in this whole controversy. Here's what it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, Deuteronomy 24, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, and she sends her out of the house, and she departs out of his house. So, the Bible, the, the law, the commands of Moses actually have a permissibility for divorce based on this idea of indecency. It doesn't define indecency for us. So the rabbis would wrestle over, well, what does that mean? What is the legitimate grounds for divorce here? Indecency, what does that mean? And two rabbinic traditions, rabbis' teachings, arose that people oriented the discussion around. One was a very liberal take on this. And and. This this Shemai interpretation was was this well indecency can be anything you don't like anything that offends you and it was even as lax as if she just ruins the food for dinner. It was it was as easy as possible. And that was probably the majority view because it gave leaders and men lots of opportunity to just do what they want and live out the same sort of mentality we have today of, I just want to do what I want. Halil, another rabbinic tradition, said, no, indecency means sexual immorality, adultery. That's what's required to do this. And, and Jesus actually aligns himself with that conservative take on here. But, but that's not even the main point he's getting after. He, he says, look, uh, what did Moses quote? And they go to Deuteronomy 24. And then Jesus gives them insight into what's behind that Deuteronomy 24 allowance for divorce. Please notice. Man, I never noticed it before I was preparing for this sermon. But Jesus demonstrates some profound authority here. Staggering authority. Did you hear what he says? L- look what he says. Oh, you, you, oh, that's interesting. You went to Deuteronomy 24. Let me tell you what's behind that. L- let me tell you what was in the mind of God when he wrote that through Moses. It doesn't say it there, but let me fill it in for you now. He made an exception from the ideal because your hearts were so hard. God does that. It's actually one of those amazing condescension things he does. God says, oh my, there's a hardness here. There's a frailty here. and, And I will, at times, he says, I'll work with you right where you are. I'll make, I'll make an exception because of the hardness on your heart uh, of your heart, but not as the end of it, but as a means of ultimately getting to the ideal. He does that with the kings in Israel. Remember the people wanted a king to be like the other nations and God says, I'm your king. Why do you want to be like them? And they say, we want a king. And he says, all right, okay. I'll let you see how that works out. And he does, and he he makes a concession because of the hardness of their hearts. But don't miss Jesus' authority in this. He's not quoting some rabbi here. He's saying, let me tell you the mind of God when he made that concession to the hardness of your heart. That's what was causing it. That's not his heart. That's not his ideal. That's response to the hardness of your heart. And notice Jesus says, your heart. No doubt referring to the, the Pharisees there, those religious leaders to whom he's speaking. But more broadly, he's talking about actually when the command's given to the nation of Israel. Among the people of God, there's a hardness of heart, he says. It's God, God's working in there. That's what he's doing there. Let me t- Think about Jesus saying, let me reveal to you the mind of God in the word. And he says... Your hearts are hard. He doesn't include himself in the hardness of heart. One of the things that's always amazed me is when I read holy, godly people, humans, like Ezra or Isaiah, calling out the sin of the people, there's always this inclusion of themselves in that sin. Even if they're not directly uh, partaking of it. So uh, Ezra calls the people out for intermarrying with the Canaanite women, and, and he says... Our sin has risen above our heads. And I want to say, well, Ezra, you didn't do that. But he knows he's implicated in the hardness of heart. He includes himself in that. Isaiah does that too. And the prophets will always end up including themselves, even as they call out the sins of the people. Not Jesus. Jesus here says, no, your hearts are hard. The hardness of your heart is the reason for this Deuteronomy 24 ability, this permission to do this. What an amazing staggering authority and distinction he makes between himself and those who have hard hearts it's just an amazing realization of who Jesus is remember we said the point is what the point always is in, in the gospel of Mark and in the Bible who are we who's God and how do we relate to him and Jesus is continuing to reveal who he is to us Jesus reveals the mind of God in this allowance in Deuteronomy 24 due to the hardness on their hearts so on the way to the ideal God makes allowances for our sinful frailty, but we can't stop there. And that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to stay with this allowance for sinful frailty and just camp there and figure out all the outs they had in marriage. Jesus didn't want them to go there. That's not where he wants them to go. He says, what did Moses command you? They go to the way out. Jesus goes to the very definition of marriage. Jesus doesn't, quote, and jump into the Deuteronomy 24 perspective. He wants to back it up and go all the way to Genesis 2, all the way to creation itself. See what he does? He, he, He says, all right, let me tell you what's really going on and where you wanted to go in Moses. Let me take you where I want to go in Moses. And that's Genesis 2. Here's what Genesis 2 says. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and we're not ashamed there's a one fleshness an intimacy a coming together in an amazing miraculous supernatural mystical way as well as a physical and very real way and he says that's what marriage is that's where you go you don't rush to all the outs you can have but you start with the definition but they just want to talk about ways of getting out of marriage. Jesus wants to talk about the divine origin and definition of marriage, and that's what he does. I believe the Bible teaches that there are biblical grounds for marriage. If we go to the Matthew 19 version of this story, which is expanded from what we have here, Jesus says, except in the case of marital unfaithfulness or sexual immorality, Paul even talks in 1 Corinthians 7 about the abandonment of an unbelieving uh, spouse for a, for a believing spouse and that, that uh, final desertion becomes an ability for uh, a, a divorce. He says you're not enslaved anymore. It can be hard to figure out exactly what that means, but I, I think there's something going on with desertion. And, with with that sort of sexual immorality that allows for this. Again, not as the ideal, not as that to which we aspire, but there, I think, continues to be an allowance. Excellent Bible teachers, and maybe some of you even here would disagree with me in that, but, 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 but I do think there are allowances for biblical basis for divorce. But not as our primary orientation. We don't go into this thinking about how we get out of it. If there are biblical grounds for divorces, I think there are, the emphasis doesn't be, get put on the, the ways out, but what it is. So we don't need the ways out. Jesus is doing that here. You wonder why Mark just leaves it so stark, even without where Matthew takes it. Now, I think it's assumed in Mark that that, that of course, is gonna be an exemption to the, the permanence of this, but but what's really going on here, and I think we need to let Mark be as stark as Mark is. Let's just hear Mark before we we try to incorporate important parallel passages. Let's hear the starkness of this teaching. Let's hear the directness of this teaching. Jesus wants us to think about primarily and emphasize primarily what marriage is, especially when it's hard and we want to start thinking about ways out. He wants us to think about what radical true discipleship really looks like. Kevin DeYoung puts it this way If all you hear are the reasons a marriage covenant might be broken, it's like learning to fly by practicing crash landings, it's like training for battle by practicing your retreats. Imagine what kind of army we would be if if, if our training for battle was just how to retreat. Or learning to fly by just practicing crash landings. No, we've got to have a very positive mentality toward what's going on here. And, and what does Jesus say? Look at, look at what he says. He says, God does this, right? They want to talk about stipulations of getting out of divorce. God wants to talk, Jesus wants to talk about the divine origin of, of marriage. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So here's an important gender distinction that sets the stage for divorce. I often hear people say, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality or what's called gay marriage, so it shouldn't be an issue for us. Now, Jesus didn't say a lot of things about a lot of important things. The Bible all needs to be our authority. But Jesus did say fundamental things about those issues. And here it is. He sees marriage as this this creation of God, not the creation of the Supreme Court, not the creation of states and what they wanted. to No, there are those legal realities. But when we back up and talk about the reality of marriage, the invention of marriage that God invents, he defines it, he creates it, he determines what it is. And it starts with distinction in gender, male and female, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. So there's a God origin, a God definition of this, and it's a work of God. And it results in this amazing uniting into one flesh. There's a one fleshness of the marriage bond that this covenant and commitment and relationship brings about. Yesterday, we I had a, I, I thought, oh man, my whole Saturday's filled up with things I have to do. I'm not going to have time to prepare for my sermon. And then I looked at my calendar and I said. Well, the the first major thing I need to go to is uh, Richard and Ruth Dix's 50th wedding anniversary celebration. And I thought, oh, maybe that's good preparation for preaching the passage tomorrow. And then you know where I had to go right after that? A wedding. An evening wedding. It was glorious to celebrate. With Richard and Ruth, 50 years. And then Jim Epperly, after the first service came up to me, and he wasn't bragging, he just said, 69 for us. 69 years of faithfulness. 69 years of marriage, not life, marriage. Right? And, and I was just rejoicing the Dix's but, but then I was thinking about, as we saw this slideshow from their time on the mission field and their love for each other over the years and having children, and I know the, the difficult things they've gone through on the mission field and in their family and physically as, as Ruth's uh, physical state has failed over the years. And I thought, what has this glorious display of the love between Christ and his church looked like in the Dix's marriage? And I thought... getting here early so Richard can get her wheelchair out of the car and bring her in so they can worship together. (laughs) See, these grand, dramatic displays of eternal theological realities work themselves out mostly in really normal-looking stuff. I went to the wedding last night and something was, I kept reminding myself, it it was at the Brea Community Center and the sound system wasn't cooperating very well during the wedding and during these most sacred moments it would go, it would make this noise and and it was, and I thought, oh, there's something so good about this that something awesome and profound is happening with feedback. I thought, this is perfect, that's marriage, right? Lots of feedback with the awesome too right? And that's what we need to do. We need to learn to see these glorious things in the mundane, in the daily, in the real. It's one of the biggest challenges for us. And Jesus wants to make sure we see this as an awesome thing that God has done. God creates this. God defines this. God tells us what it's all about. God tells us the definition of marriage. And Jesus does something fascinating. He quotes Genesis two, and then he adds his big conclusion to the whole discussion. And he says, "Therefore, look what he says in verse, um, verse nine. Well, therefore, God has joined together; let not man separate. So you're trying to strategize ways to get out of this thing. No, God did it. You stay in it. You don't go into your marriage figuring out ways to get out with a prenuptial agreement." anticipating the demise no you go into it for life and here's the definition of marriage that i would like to propose here it is we got there ready guys yeah marriage is created and defined by god and is a sacred union between one man and one woman this covenant is intended for life and to point beyond itself to god's covenant love and faithfulness in christ and here's a verse that we need to think about. Therefore, a man shall leave his father. Look, Ephesians sounds like Genesis 2. Shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That's what marriage is. It's not an end in itself. It's a display of something far greater than itself. It's a display of God's covenant love and faithfulness. It's a display of what God's like. That's its job. It's to image God in his relationship to his bride, the church. It's something he does. Marriage among Christians is mainly meant to tell the truth about the gospel, that Christ dies for his church who loves him and never breaks his covenant with his bride. The reason God hates divorce is, yes, because it hurts us so much, but that's not the main reason. The main reason God hates divorce is because it lies about him. It lies about the way he loves, relentlessly and pursuing love and ruthlessly going after the wayward bride. That's who he is. That's what he's like. Listen to John Chrysostom as he speaks to men. Hear the rule of love. Take care of your bride as Christ did the church. Even if you must give your life for her or be cut into a thousand pieces or whatever you must undergo and suffer, shirk not from it. Even if you suffer at this, you've not yet done anything that Christ did for you. For you do this being already joined to her in marriage. He did it for a bride who rejected and hated him. And then he brought her to himself with wonderful care and affection. That's how God loves, and that's how he wants us to love. Not only when it's easy or when it's convenient or when it seems to be what's natural to me, when there's not any better competition. No, in the midst of real difficulty. That's very often when love in marriage shows itself most. To fail to stay faithful in the covenant of marriage is to hinder the gospel's advance in the world. Marriage is very much a gospel issue. Listen to one theologian. As long as Christ keeps his covenant with his bride, the church, with his bride, the church, and as long as the church, by sustaining grace of God, remains the chosen people of Jesus Christ, then the very meaning of marriage will include what God has joined, only God can separate. Jesus says, don't divorce your spouse and marry someone else. If you do, you've committed adultery. What is adultery? Ultimately, it is adultery because it betrays the truth about Christ that marriage is meant to display. Jesus never, never, never does that to his bride, is unfaithful. He never forsakes her. He never abandons her. He never abuses her. He always loves her. He always takes her back when she wanders. He always is patient with her. He always cares for her and provides for her and protects her. And wonder of wonders delights in her. That's how God loves, and that's how he wants Christians to love one another in marriage. In general, too, but there's an intensity of it in marriage where it's so difficult to do on a daily, moment-by-moment basis, constantly consider the other's needs before your own, that it's an incredible challenge, so when it works, it's amazing. It really does help show the world what God's like. Even when we're really unlovely, God loves us. You know, one of the most stirring stories, many of you probably have heard it before, but Robertson McQuilkin, who was the president of Columbia Bible College and seminary for years, and he was a missionary for years, an amazingly influential man on lots of boards of missions organizations and ministries, and having a huge influence in the world in his 60s. His wife developed Alzheimer's. And over time, she got more and more needy, especially for him, and he was wrestling with the decision of whether or not he should step down from his presidency and all the influence he was having in the prime of his ministry to devote his 24-7 care to her. And he had lots of well-intentioned friends and advisors saying, Robertson, don't squander the influence God's given you to care for someone who doesn't even know your name anymore. He disagreed with them. And this is just a little piece of his resignation speech he gave at Columbia when he did it. Robertson McQuilkin put a flagpole up in his front lawn and would raise a flag on Dave's mural. would smile so when her friends drove by, they would know she was having a good day. He did. He stepped down from all these really important roles in his life so that he could tend to the most important one in his life in that time. For Robertson McQuilkin, this is just simple discipleship. I recommend his book, A Promise Kept, In that book, in an article, he he reflects on this time. And he says, people would constantly say, how are you doing? How do you feel? And he would always say, I'm at a loss to respond. There's subterranean grief that won't go away. I feel as alone as if I'd never known her as she was, I suppose. But the loneliness is of the night when it comes because I did know her. I grieve for her loss Do I grieve for my loss? Then he says this, I guess my friends are asking me not about her needs, but about mine. Perhaps they wonder in the contemporary jargon of how I'm coping. As they reflect on how the reputed, indispensable characteristics of a good marriage have slipped away one by one, so that I came across a." common contemporary wisdom in this morning's newspaper in a letter to a national columnist. I ended the relationship because I was, it wasn't meeting my needs. The counselor's response was predictable. What were your needs that you weren't getting met in this relationship? Do you still have these needs? Do you still have these, needs, these same needs? What would he have to do to fill those needs? Could he do it? Needs for communication, understanding, affirmation, common interest and in sexual fulfillment. The list goes on. If the needs are not met, leave. The writer left no alternatives. Listen to what he says here. This is a profound sentence. He said, I then reflected on the eerie irrelevance of every one of those criteria for me. Those criteria, communication, common interests, affirmation, understanding, sexual fulfillment. As those things ebbed away in his needs getting met in his relationship with his wife, his faithfulness, his commitment, his love didn't waver at all. He reflects that it was far easier for him to manage a $10 million budget at a university than it was to get his wife to take a shower when she didn't want to. And what he says was, in those times, unlike ever before in my life, I knew how much I needed God to help me. See, he, he had a pretty easy time, relatively speaking, caring for a big organization. But he said taking his wife shopping without her wandering off, putting everybody else's things in his cart, he said, without angering her and stopping her, that would be the challenge. See, what marriage can do is force us to the end of ourselves in some ways unlike anything else so that we go to the only source of strength that really will provide for us. I don't think it's a coincidence that right after this scene in Mark and in Matthew, we have the story of Jesus telling them to let the little children come to him. If If you read it, he says, oh, these are the ones the utterly dependent, trusting ones, those are the ones who epitomize the kingdom and kingdom people. That's what he calls us to. That's who disciples are. Not people who somehow find the strength within themselves to stay in hard situations, but the ones who get to the end of themselves as true disciples and fall at the feet of Jesus and trust him and him alone to do what they never could do on their own let me say a few words in closing. If you're single here today, you may have an attitude that says, well, this sermon hasn't been for me. I'm not married. You may be. You can start thinking ahead. Or maybe you're called to singleness. But the great news is you can benefit from marriage even if you're not the one in it by watching marriages reflecting God's love and faithfulness. So great. You don't have to even be in a marriage to experience the glory of it. You can watch it. That's why the church is so important. You go watch marriages, show you who Jesus and the Father are, right? So uh, so don't but but also realize that marriage is a reflection. Jesus wasn't married. He seemed to do okay. Paul wasn't married. So you don't have to be married to be a true disciple, to tap into the ultimate. Remember, marriage is a shadow. There won't be marriage in heaven. That's amazing, but it's true because why? It's a reflection of something greater than itself, the relationship between Christ and his church. So when that relationship is consummated, the shadow isn't necessary any longer. Listen to Edwards. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully enjoy God is infinitely greater than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. So if you're single here, well, just live for what's ultimate. Then if you do get married, your marriage won't become an idol. And in the meantime, You can be delighting in the marriage of others and seeing who God is through that. If you're here and you're divorced, and I know there are plenty of you in here, for all sorts of circumstances, just about complete victim in this thing, perpetrator of it, uh, proudly doing it, I don't know, I I know there are divorced people. If you're divorced, what you need to know is you, like the rest of us, are included in the hard-hearted ones. Jesus alone isn't. And no matter what the circumstances, God is the God who loves to take messes that we've made and other people have made for us and make them beautiful, redemptive stories, starting at the foot of the cross. The greatest display of something horrific made into something glorious. That's where we find redemption and meaning and forgiveness and realizing, oh, even with this mess, it's going to be all right. And if you are married, oh, if your marriage is hard, love the opportunity to show God's work in you to the world by your faithfulness that he enables you to have. If your marriage is healthy, well, just keep going. And for all of us, this passage about marriage and divorce is really about true discipleship. Wherever those challenges may be coming from. So let's meet them with gospel-enabled, Holy Spirit-empowered strength and dependence and gratitude. Lord, help us. We are a needy people. Uh, We do make massive messes in our lives, and people make them for us. Would you help us to go to you, the only God, who can save and salvage and redeem and restore Thank you for Jesus. I pray for anyone struggling in their marriage that you would give them great confidence in you and your ability to help them and for their marriage to be everything you intend for it to be. Lord, for those who've suffered the grief of divorce, Lord, whatever the circumstances, I pray they'd run to the cross and find a loving, gracious, kind, compassionate, restoring God there. Lord, for all of us, I pray that we would better understand what it means to be true disciples in the midst of very conflicting messages pumped into our ears every day and eyes every day. Help us to listen to Jesus, who alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's in his name we pray, amen.